Hello, countercultural comrades. Welcome to the first episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture of 2023. I'm Stephen Coates. I was very pleased to see that the Bureau was listed in Shindig Magazine's top 10 radio shows of 2022. Thanks to everybody at Soho Radio and to all our guests and to you for listening and sharing. We've had so much positive feedback. It's been very heartening and encouraging as we try to piece together a history of the counterculture, assembling it bit by bit. It's a Sisyphean task, I know, but great fun and enlightening. I do feel like I am learning so much. Come and see what the fuss is about. BureauofLostCulture.com Much of what we've covered today has been British and often centred in the 50s, 60s and 70s, often here in central London or in Soho, but not all by any means. And we will be expanding outwards geographically and temporarily again this year. Many of the counterculture movements we've had here did have their roots further west. And in this episode, recorded on Christmas Eve, I met with the photographer and filmmaker Lisa Law, a very feisty 80-year-old in Yalapa in Mexico. Lisa's story is extraordinary. Her images are extraordinary. Bob Dylan, The Velvet Underground, Janis Joplin, The Beatles, Otis Redding, Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, Timothy Leary, Ram Dass, Allen Ginsberg, and many, many more. As the Smithsonian says, Lisa's story is one that emerged from American society in the turbulence of the late 50s and 60s. As Americans face controversial issues, civil rights, the Vietnam War, nuclear arms, the environment, the drug use, sexual freedom, and non-conformity. Many young people, like Lisa, questioned America's materialism and cultural and political norms, seeking a better world. Some used music, politics, and alternative lifestyles, and in her case, photography, to create what came to be known as the counterculture. Lisa's images provide an unparalleled glimpse into the folk and rock music scenes of the 60s and 70s, California's blossoming countercultural scene, and the family-centered and spiritual world of commune life in New Mexico. The moments that she lived, witnessed, and recorded on the frontiers of cultural change. And she's here to tell us all about it in this, the first of two episodes dedicated to her life and times. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture, the legend, Lisa Law. Hi. <laughs> Como estas? Yo estoy aquí en México. <laughs> Do you mind being called a legend? Well, that's what's happening now, and I think I've lasted long enough to become a legend. <laughs> I'm still alive. I'm almost right. 80. I know. Well, listen, if you last much longer, you're going to become a myth. How about that? <laughs> oh, what's the definition of a myth? <laughs> Well, I think a myth is when you've passed into the collective unconscious. <laughs> well, I was born in 43. 43, just before the end of the war. Now, just tell us where you were born and what it was like growing up and, you know, what your family life was like. Oh, we lived in Burbank, California. Right. And my mother was an attorney. And my father was a furrier. And he was a, a union organizer for the garment industry. So they were very bright people. So I was raised in a very intelligent surrounding. Okay. So my mother went to work as a lawyer and, and uh, she did industrial accident and personal injury. She also defended a lot of Mexicans that came up and she represented black people too that had problems. So she was um, a pretty far out woman, very liberal. Okay, so I was raised in a really good surrounding and I loved horses and I would ride at Pickwick Stables in Burbank and uh, I was totally into riding horses and hanging out with the people who rode horses. And my father, he liked to make movies of his events that he he did in Mexico. So he did fishing in Guaymas 
wild boar. He went wild boar hunting. So wild, I saw wild. his films of wild boar hunting and fishing. Right. And he gave me a little a little camera. He was shooting everything, so I was shooting everything <clears throat> from six years old. Yeah, so I was learning from him about documenting. And the one thing, one thing that I did that maybe a lot of pe other people didn't do was that I kept every negative. Right, right. So I have all those pictures I took. Then I became a photographer for Galileo High School. And I was also going to a therapist. And the therapist told my mother that I shouldn't live with her anymore. She wasn't helping me mentally. So she had sent my brother to live with my aunt in San Francisco. And so the therapist said, send your daughter to San Francisco to live with your aunt, who's a social worker. But why were you in therapy? Do you mind me, do you mind me asking? Well, she believed in psychiatrists. If anything was wrong with your kid, you go to a psychiatrist. Those days they did that. They were going, or you're always going to a psychiatrist. Anyway, she put me in a private school in uh, the Valley. And, uh, and, and I love the private school because they let me take the goat home on weekends and I could go out and play with the snakes and the squirrels and the rabbits. And I was totally into animals. And so that school worked. Okay. Whereas the regular school didn't work. Right. So you uh, went to, you went to the therapist and the therapist, despite the fact that your mother had sent you there, then recommends that you shouldn't live with your mother. So she says, go and live in San Francisco with your aunt. Which I did. And your mother was okay with that? I guess so. I was, and, uh, and I went and my aunt had started a halfway house for ex-mental patients. I would come home and there's all these nutty people that lived at the house. Well, nutty people and I get along great. Sure. So, so it's a much better circumstance. It was totally different. I can sort of sense the pieces of the jigsaw, which kind of made up, you know, your life later were in place. Your mother's a strong woman. She's also socially active. She represents the underprivileged, the downtrodden in some way. Your father's a documentarian, a photographer and a filmmaker. And a union organizer. And a union organizer, right, and a li liberals. And then you, you you go off and then you're actually quite independent living on your own. You love animals, snakes and uh, goats. Goats. And, <laughs> and then you're, you're hanging around with people who are a bit crazy. So it's this is all coming yeah. together now. It all makes complete sense. Keep, keep going. Yeah. So in the 60s, everybody was crazy, right? And I was in charge of meeting these people from all the way, all around the world, and they'd come stay at Connor And I would go to North Beach a lot. So North Beach is where the beatniks were. This is 1958, 1959, right? So the beat generation who were based, that, in, kind of based in San Francisco, right? Right, at North Beach. And Galileo High School is right next to North Beach. So I'd go down to North Beach after school and hang out. And I, it, it listened to po poets and musicians, and and uh, we loved Mary Travers of Peter, Paul, and Mary. So I mm -hmm. had bangs and hair down to here, and I'd iron my hair so it was straight, so I looked like Mary Travers. I would listen to all this poetry and this music and everything, and it totally changed my life. Well, Allen Ginsberg and people like that. Just to talk a little bit about the Beats, in terms of American culture and, you know, the 50s, which was a boom time for America, wasn't it? Peak America in some way after the war. So the Beats kind of emerged. For you, was that the first sense of something radically new coming? Yes, it was very, very different. And I liked it a lot. And when I graduated, I actually moved to uh, Sausalito. Now, Sausalito is where the alternative people hang out. That's where the boat, boat people were, a lot of musicians, um, a lot of poets. Down in North Beach, that's where Otis Redding wrote, sitting at the dock of the bay. And we used to hang out at Gate 5 and Gate 6. And uh, I was still shooting, and there was events um, at the park in Sausalito where... Um, Dino Valente would hang out. Okay, so Dino Valente wrote the song, Come on, people now, smile on your brother, everybody get together, kind of love one another right now. And I got a job at the Trident Restaurant 
And um, the job was to make sure that the musicians who were playing there got to their gig on time. So Frank Werber was the manager of the Kingston Trio, and he owned the Trident Restaurant with the Kingston Trio. And he used to send me over, like, to get Bill Evans. So Bill Evans, the famous pianist, he was doing heroin back then. And I'd go over to get him, and he'd say, oh, I can't go anyplace, Lisa. I said, so why? He says, uh, well, look, look at my hands. They're all swollen up. And I said, so you can't play the piano? He says, no, I, I can't go. Well, I said, I'm really sorry. But my job is to get you over there. So I'm sorry, but you got to go. Let's go. And he actually went. And uh, Jack Sheldon, uh, the, the famous trumpet player, he, he came there and played. I went over to Berkeley and I heard Brazil 65. And I said to Frank, Frank, you got to get this, this group over here. He goes, no, I'm only jazz, jazz. And I said, yeah, but how about like Sunday afternoon? Bring them over, try them one week, see if you like. And so that's when I started getting involved with music. So everywhere that you went, you know, you were always with a camera, right? You were always shooting. Right. He, he got me a backstage pass to the Beatles in 65. So I went with one of his uh, producers that worked there and I got to go backstage. I got to go up in the front stage and I was shooting right there and sitting behind me on a, a box for speakers with Joan Baez. She went to that concert too. She's sitting right behind me. So I'm going around in front shooting and, and going in the back when the kids were fainting and being carried off and the screaming girls, everybody's screaming through them. You couldn't even hear any of the music. They were screaming so loud. What did you think of that then? Because I mean, it was they were quite a phenomenon, weren't they? So what did you make of it? Oh, well, it was so exciting to see the Beatles. You know, the Beatles were it. Behind me were all these people like pushing, pushing forward. In fact, the next concert that afternoon, they put a wire fence up so nobody could push them themselves onto the stage. And the Kingston Trio's wives were all in the front and they were being trampled and they had to be held over the wire fence across the stage to the back. One lady pregnant and she oh my god what's happening and also up above in the with the it was the grateful dead were there so i mean the beatles were it of course during that time and so i got to shoot the beatles and i was shooting for frankie they had mystery trend and the sons of champlin uh the kingston trio the we five so i was hanging out of recording studios and and i was hanging out with the musicians and when i brought Brazil 65 over to the Trident. They were a big hit. I mean, I became friends with Sergio Mendes because of the Trident. That's when they became famous. I nearly always associate that kind of, you know, rock photography, music photography. And certainly in the UK, it was, probably still is, mainly men, actually. But um, was that usual for, what, were, were you the only one who was, the only woman who was actually shooting? At that point, I was. And uh, it was very difficult for many, many years to be a woman photographer. Tell us. Because you're not respected. And because I'm a real pushy kind of person, I didn't care. I knew what I was doing. And at College of Marin, I learned how to do portraits, how to get right in there with the fixed lens be able to see the light. Like right now, you have you have light on one side of your face and you're dark on the other. Okay. So I knew where to stand to get the light perfect on these people's faces. And that's what I've, I've learned is how to shoot with the camera, edit, editing in the, in the camera, not later. And that's what I'm known for. And I'm also known for quick shooting. I can pick up my camera and shoot because I want to capture that second when nobody's looking, when it, nothing's set up. When you started, your work started to get published and people saw the quality of your images, did, then, did they then start to respect you or did you carry on facing this, you know, 
because you're a woman that actually, you know, you were struggling to get respect or did the work itself start to change that? The only other person who really got respect was Linda McCartney, Paul McCartney's wife. When Linda McCartney got famous, that, that showed that a woman could be a great photographer. I'm really sorry that she had to die so young and I'm sorry for Paul and the children because she was so great. She was a very good photographer, okay? But uh, I still had to struggle for years hmm. because I was a, a woman. Let's go back to San Francisco. You're hanging out with music producers, with musicians at the clubs. So let me take you back there. What happens next? At that point, I was also learning how to sail boats. I was sailing on Frank Werber's boat. In fact, what happened was, is I told Frank, I said, Frank, I think I'm going to move to um, New York. He says, why would you move to New York? I said, well, I, I need a job that pays more. I, I'm just not making enough money. Now, I says, hold on. Uh, wait a few days before you do that. Now, he's the manager of the Kingston Trio. He has Trident Productions in San Francisco. So Frank uh, called me back and he said, look, Lisa, I have a job for you. I want you to be my personal manager. And I said, oh, okay. What does that mean? He says, you're going to buy my food, cook my food, clean my house, take care of my Cadillac convertible, take care of my yacht, take care of my motorcycle. And then, of course, I had to make love to him on days that he didn't have some girlfriend. I wasn't too excited about that part of it. That was all part of the job description. Yeah, but what are you going to do when you're that age? I mean, you have to go along with it. So I became his personal manager which was great for me because I learned how to cook. I learned how to shop. I learned how to take care of a house. I learned everything from Frank Werber. Okay. Plus he gave me my first good camera, which was a Honeywell Pentax. So now I'm in college of Marin studying photography. I'm living at his house in uh, Ross. What a life, huh? So I go to college during the day. Then I go to the Trident at nighttime and listen to music and I shoot pictures. And oh man, life was great. Life was really great. Here is a sidebar about the American folk music revival. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. And a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to laugh, a time to weep. To everything turn, 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 there is a season, turn, 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 and a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to build up, a time to break down, a time to dance, a time to mourn, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones. The folk music revival began during the 1940s and peaked in popularity in the mid-60s. As a commercial phenomenon, the revival began with the career of the Weavers, formed in November 1948 by Pete Seeger. They had a huge hit in 1950 with Lead Belly's Goodnight Irene, followed by a string of hit singles that sold millions. But the Weavers' career ended abruptly when they were dropped from Decker's catalogue because Pete Seeger had been listed as a probable communist subversive. Radio stations refused to play their records and venues cancelled their engagements. Folk music, which often carried the stigma of left-wing associations during the 1950s McCarthyite Red Scare, was driven underground. And the folk music scene became associated with bohemianism in places like New York, especially in Greenwich Village, and San Francisco's North Beach, which we heard about from Lisa. Often associated with political dissent, folk music now blended with the so-called beatnik scene, and singers of folk songs travelled through what was called the coffee house circuit, which was also home to cool jazz, and recitations 
of beatnik poetry. Good evening and welcome. I'd like to start out with a real protest song called I Ain't Marching Anymore. Oh, I march to the Battle of New Orleans at the end of the early British wars. The young land started growing, the young blood started flowing. Just as John Kennedy had touched young people with his idealistic words, Phil Oakes, Bob Dylan, and many other folk singers touched young people with their songs. And thousands of them came to coffee houses to listen to this music, which seemed to reflect their personal concerns so well. Now look at all we want with the saber and the gun. Tell me, is it worth it all? For I stole California from the Mexican land, fought in the bloody Civil War. Yes, I even killed my brothers and so many others, but I ain't marching anymore. In places like these, students mingled with all kinds of social outsiders. Negroes, beatniks, eccentrics, radicals. And they heard all kinds of unconventional ideas about family, school, country, and civil rights. The Kingston Trio, a group that originated on the West Coast, were directly inspired by the weavers in their style, but avoided overtly political or protest songs. They were discovered by Frank Werber, who we hear about from Lisa, who became their manager and got them a deal with Capitol Records. Their first hit, an old-time folk murder ballad, Tom Dooley, which was sung at Lead Belly's funeral and sold more than three million copies. The huge commercial success of the Kingston Tree spawned a host of other groups, like the Brothers Four, Peter, Paul and Mary, and the new Christy Minstrels. Their popularity would be followed by that of Joan Byers, whose debut album remained on the Billboard charts for over two years. But unlike the Kingston trio, Byers was openly political, and as the civil rights movements gathered pace, she aligned herself with Pete Seeger, Guthrie and others, and was one of the singers with them, Josh White, Peter Paul and Mary and Bob Dylan, who appeared at Martin Luther King's 1963 March on Washington and sang, We Shall Overcome. Bob Dylan's first record enjoyed some popularity amongst Greenwich Village folk music enthusiasts, but he was discovered by an immensely larger audience when Peter, Paul and Mary had a hit with a cover of his Blowing in the Wind. It was not long before the folk music category came to include less traditional material and more personal poetic creations by individual singer-songwriters. Phil Oakes, Tom Paxton, Buffy Saint-Marie, Judy Collins, Gordon Lightfoot, John Denver, and many others. And then one day he took me to hear Peter, Paul, and Mary over in uh, Berkeley. And I was shooting Peter, Paul, and Mary right up in front of the stage like I do all the time. And then I went backstage and there's this guy named Eddie Sarkeesian. And Eddie Sarkeesian was a booking agent for the Kingston Trio and for Peter, Paul, and Mary. So I came in and I saw this guy named Tom Law. He was the road manager for Peter, Paul, and Mary. And I said to Eddie, who is that? Gorgeous, blonde, muscular, beautiful face. I said, oh, my God. He says, that's your husband. And I said, I know. Introduce me. Frank ran off with some hooker girlfriend of his that was backstage, too. And he said, here's the keys to the car. Take my car home, which is the Cadillac convertible with the telephone in it. So who do I take across to San Francisco but Tom Law and Peter Yarrow? And Peter's sitting next to me, and Tom's behind me, and he's massaging my shoulders. That was a good thing. I thought, mm, the guy even massages. He's good. You've got this kind of amazing lifestyle going on. And then you drive a convertible across the city with Peter from Peter, Paul, Mary in the, next to you, and this hunky guy, Tom Law, you just met behind you, massaging your shoulders, right? Yeah, so he said to me when I drop him off at the, I think it was the Hyatt on Van Ness Avenue, 
He says, come on up. And I said, I can't come on up. I'm sorry. Of course, I knew that he would have wanted to make love to me. And I, I wasn't in the mood. I said, I'm sorry, Tom, but I have to take the car back to Frank down to Ross. I got to take the car back. That's my job. He says, okay. So I dropped he and Peter off. And uh, two weeks later, I get this phone call. Hi, Lisa. Um, I'm taking a break from Peter, Paul, and Mary. And I would love to come visit you during that break. And I went, oh, okay. So I invite him to come live with me in that little guest house at Frank's place. And of course, we go to Stinson Beach and we go out to dinner and we make love and we go swimming and I fell in love with him. Then he has to go to LA, he got a new job being the assistant to the director of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Mike Nichols. I have to go down there and take care of my grandmother who had just had a cataract operation. And I, I, I call him up, I said, Tom, I'm in LA, take care of my grandma. He says, oh, I wanna come get you and show you the castle we just bought. So he comes and gets me and he shows me this unbelievable castle. Uh, in the Los Feliz area, it cost him and his brother and this guy named Jack Simmons uh, 100000 It just sold for $9.5 So I spend some time with him, and I take care of my grandma. And finally, he says, why don't you come in and move in with me? I said, well, I'm in the middle of school at the College of Marin. Uh, I would only do that, Tom, if, if I was your old lady. In Bell's days, they called him oh, your old lady, old man, old lady. So did, let me get this right. Did you just propose marriage to him? Yes. So I, he said, okay, you can be my old lady. That was how he proposed to me. Okay, you can be my old lady. Oh, my God. So I said, okay. So Frank had bought me a... Um, Ford sedan, an old Ford sedan. I moved out of Frank's 66, this is, moving down to the castle. So my job is to clean, to cook, to go grocery shopping. I rode his motorcycle with him, Triumph 650. He just loved the fact that I could do all those things, see? And uh, most of his girlfriends were teeny boppers. Maybe they had big breasts and whatever, but they couldn't do what I could do. And I had learned all that from Frank. So he loved having me there. And Owsley would come there. Well, Owsley, for anybody who doesn't know, is the is the is one of the main people behind LSD, right, in the West Coast. What was Owsley like? Well, he was very uh, uh, gregarious, high, happy. He knew what he had. I mean, he, I had gotten loaded at 62 on his acid already. In Marin with friends of mine. So you first took acid LSD in 62? 62. And had you heard about it before? I mean, how? Wh when did acid come to that part of the world? And It was created by uh, Albert uh, Hoffman. Yeah. So you'd heard about acid and then you took it for the first time, yeah? We were taking his acid, which was really good. His acid was very good. My first trip, I'll never forget my first trip. I sat in a blackberry bush eating blackberries and I fell in love with the bush. And then I fell in love with the tree and I fell in love with the ground and I fell in love with everything. It was all about love. Acid was about love. And then a friend of ours drove us across the Golden Gate Bridge to the Pacific Ocean. And we went running into the ocean. Taking acid was something I liked to do. It really let me fall in love with nature. We went out of our minds, but we found all these things, poetry and art. And, and so acid, I believe, is what changed everything in the 60s. For you personally, it was like a that psychedelic experience. Was that like an awakening of consciousness? I mean, did that shape your life, you think? Yes. Poets, clowns, musicians, yogis, women, political activists, minority groups, sexy folk, both straight and gay, esoteric religious practitioners, entrepreneurs and single parents, healers and folks involved in birthing and dying were all suddenly free to be. We recognize that C.S. Lewis had pointed out that you can't see the center because it's all center. 
and that each of us is a superstar creating our own universe. Perhaps we could hold this pure space in its fullness. So I was able to capture the birth of many things, musically, politically, socially, women, natural childbirth, breastfeeding, demonstrations against the war, um, anti-Vietnam things. Every time I turned around, there was another march. There was another event. And I would shoot all those things. Everything was exciting during that time. But let's just go back to you and Tom. So you moved to this place. He's bought this crazy place called the castle. You've moved up there, right? Owsley's coming. You're sort of keeping house, basically. All sorts of people start to stop by, right? Tell us about them. Well, people would rent rooms because we had rooms to rent. Tom and I lived on the tower room that had about 20 windows. And uh, on the floor down below is where Bob Dylan rented a room. Okay, that's just before he went to Europe and went electric. Okay, so he knew Tom because his manager was Albert Grossman. Right. The manager of Peter Paul Mary was Albert Grossman. So Tom already knew Bob Dylan from being at the in Woodstock at the Bearsville recording studio. Okay, so Bob said, Tom, can I rent a room from you? And Tom said, of course. And so I was the housekeeper, the cook, and Bob Dylan's masseuse. What was that like, massaging massaging the Bob? I had no idea he was going to become who he became, I'll tell you that. And I would shoot the heck out of a kitchen and dining room. I shot his desk. Tom and I took him to hear Otis Redding at the Whiskey A Go-Go. So that's in 66. Those pictures I took of Otis Redding because I got up out of my seat and said, I got to shoot this guy. He's fantastic. And I could barely keep up with him because he was moving around so much. Those became Atlantic Records promo shots for Otis Redding. I was with Bob quite a bit there during that period of time. I shot a great picture of him kind of with his thumb up to his chin without glasses on looking down. Later, I looked at my proof sheets and I said, oh, here's another one that kind of looks kind of interesting. Well, that picture blew up. I mean, everybody was using that picture and wanting that picture. In fact, recently, when I was doing the museum in the 60s in Santa Fe, um, this guy came through and he says, I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they're doing the Bob Dylan Center there. And I think they ought to see your pictures because there was an entire wall of Bob Dylan at the Museum of the 60s show. And so I called up the curator and, he, and I sent him my proof sheets. And he says, I want that picture to be 15 feet tall, 17 feet wide. And I want all your proof sheets to go up the stairway to the second floor. And I knew that if I charged him, it wasn't going to happen. Right. And so I said, OK, I'll donate these pictures. I just love the uh, the uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Bob Dylan Center. And the reason it's there is because Woody Guthrie's mm. museum is there. And when Bob saw the Woody Guthrie Museum, he said, that's where I want George Kaiser to put my stuff, right next to the Woody Guthrie Museum. So everybody says, well, why is Bob Dylan in Tulsa, Oklahoma? And I said, because he was in love with Woody Guthrie. And he was always singing Woody Guthrie's songs before he started writing his songs. It was Woody Guthrie's songs. Then he learned how to write. And then all of a sudden, he just exploded. Well, it wasn't just Dylan at the castle, was it? I mean, David Crosby, Andy Warhol. It was a bit of a sort of meeting point, melting pot for, for counterculture as well, right? Barry Maguire lived there. He lived there. And he's the one who wrote, We're on the Eve of Destruction, that song. And then we rented rooms after Bob to the Velvet Underground. So there's Lou Reed and Nico and their whole band was staying there. And that's when Andy Warhol came over because that was his group that was playing at the trip. I photographed them rehearsing at the castle, which are now famous photographs and using whatever they use them for. It's because I shot without a strobe. And so... Andy Warhol was projecting his videos on the back of the screen behind the Velvet Underground. And I was able to capture those tests that he was doing 
And basically, there was only one other photographer shooting, and he shot with a strobe. And for some reason, my pictures of the Velvet Underground at the castle and at the trip became the ones they used later to be with the different recordings and books. And so I just made myself available mm -hmm. to all these companies. I shot Tim Harden's first album cover in the gardens below the castle. And then I shot the back and then, then I was shooting when, when he died, I was supposed to shoot his last album cover and he died that night from overdose of white lightning. That's uh, speed and Coke. And my brother calls me up and he says, did you know Tim Harden? Cause he always watched the news and he was in Detroit and I was in California. I said, did you know Tim Harden? What do you mean did I know Tim Harden? I'm shooting him today for his next album cover. And he says, no, you're not. He died last night. They actually then came to me, Verve Records, and asked for some outtakes of my first shoot, which then they used for his last album cover. Uh, David Wheeler was there. David Wheeler was one of the greatest marijuana smugglers at that point. And he brought in uh, Acapulco Gold to California. Okay. Before that, it was all just sticks and leaves and seeds from Mexico. Now, here comes Acapulco Gold, which is fine, but not even compare it to today's marijuana, which is so strong you can only take one puff and that's it. If you take any more, you're on a couch for four hours. With Tim Harding, along with the stuff that we're going to talk about, the summer of love and the wonderful aspects of it, you must have also witnessed the darker side of the counterculture too, right? I mean, which is that, I guess, there was the, the way when the drugs went wrong for people, right? Well, I wouldn't say that heroin is part of the counterculture. I don't think so. Because I think that the counterculture was acid, mushrooms, peyote, any psilocybin, Hare Krishna's yoga, Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhist. I'm a Tibetan Buddhist. That's counterculture. Anti-war demonstration, natural childbirth, back to the land, gardening, organic, eating right, civil rights. Of course, you're going to have things like drugs. Right now, there's drugs. They're killing these kids right now. Okay? That's not counterculture. A counterculture, I consider the good stuff that happened. The poetry, the music, the love, loving each other. Okay? Uh, I would consider... Monterey Pop is a perfect counterculture event. Let's just go back to the castle for a moment. You're you're now not only actually housekeeper and host, um, but you're also taking photographs again, and you have all these guests coming through. So what happens with you and Tom next? I mean, how do you get to San Francisco? What, what brought about that uh, transition? Uh, Tom and I would go over to uh, the hog farm, which was in the valley, and that was run by Hugh Romney every Saturday would have another event. He'd have a rodeo where you ride the pigs. He was taking care of a bunch of hogs. And that's why they called it the hog farm. And it was on top of a mountain and they were all living up there. The pranksters and the hog farmers were living up there. And they had buses and they blacks and they would have these events, music. Of, and he had come from New York and he was a poet uh, along with uh, Tiny Tim. And uh, Ken Kesey was trying to get away <laughs> from the cops, right? Ken Kesey, you know, uh, took uh, acid and he wrote the One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. Right then, Tom and I decided to move to Yalapa, Mexico. Now, that's where I am right now. And so we pack up our stuff and we come to Yalapa and he'd already been here and I'd already been here. I came here in 61 when I was sailing around the world on a Gaffrick schooner. And so we move into Yalapa and we're staying with a friend and got a piece of land at 300 a year, big, beautiful piece of land by the bay, by the ocean, by the sand. And I drink some bad water and I get hepatitis. So now I can't move. I'm yellow. I'm sick. And, uh, here comes some people who said, well, you know what's happening up in de Jimenez? They're taking mushrooms with the Mazatecan Indians. Let's go. So Tom goes, yeah, let's go. 
And I go, hold on a second. I thought we were going to build a house here in Yalapa and live here the rest of our lives. What, what happened? Oh, let's go take the mushrooms that the mother taken Indians. Oh, okay. So I go get a gamma globula and shot in Puerto Vallarta. We take a bus up to Teotitlan de Valle. We go up to the Wautla. And there's all these little Indians. They're all on, not they're all on mushrooms, but the Coranderas are giving out mushrooms. And there's Maria Sabina giving out mushrooms and doing ceremonies. And Tom takes mushrooms. Here is another sidebar. Maria Sabina Magdalena Garcia was a Mazatec Curandera, a shaman and a poet, who lived in Huatla de Jamanes, a town in the Mexican state of Oaxaca. Her healing sacred mushroom ceremonies, called Veledas, were based on the use of psilocybin mushrooms. Marina's Veledas contributed to the popularization of indigenous Mexican ritual use of entheogenic mushrooms amongst Westerners. She was born towards the end of the 19th century. Her grandfather and great-grandfather were also shamans, skilled in using the mushrooms to communicate with God according to their beliefs. Maria was the first Mexican curandera to allow Westerners to participate in the healing rituals. All participants in the Veledas ingested psilocybin mushrooms as a sacrament to open the gates of the mind. In 1955, American ethnomycologist and banker R. Gordon Wasson and his wife Valentina, a Russian scientist, visited Maria Sabina's hometown, where Wasson participated in a Veleda with her. The Wassons collected spores of the fungus, which they identified as Psilocybe Mexicana, and took them to Paris. He was later isolated in the laboratory in 1958 by Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman, the discoverer of LSD. The Wassons published their experiences with Marina, and young people from the United States began seeking her out as early as 1962, with numerous hippies, scientists, and other people visiting her remote, isolated village. Many 60s celebrities, including Bob Dylan, John Lennon and Keith Richards, were rumoured to have visited her there too. But as the community was besieged by Westerners wanting to experience the mushroom-induced hallucinations, Sabina attracted attention from the Mexican police. The unwanted attention completely altered the social dynamics of the Mazatec community and threatened to terminate their customs. The community blamed Sabina, consequently she was ostracised, her house burned down and her son murdered. She regretted having introduced Wasson to the practice, though he contended his only intention was to contribute to the summon of human knowledge, despite being funded by the CIA's mind control project, MKUltra. From 67 to 77, Marina's life returned to normal conditions after the Mexican army blocked American, European and Mexican hippies and other unwanted visitors from entering on the only roads into the town. Alvaro Estrada, a fellow Mazatec, recorded Maria's life and work and translated her chants. And his American brother-in-law, Henry Mann, wrote that Maria Sabina brilliantly used themes common to Mazatec and Mesoamerican spiritual traditions, but at the same time was a unique talent, a masterful oral poet with a profound literary and personal charisma. Well, three days later, he says, I got to go say goodbye to my brother. He's taken off for Europe, I'm going to go say goodbye to him. I said, what, you, you're, you're going to leave me here? So he leaves me there with two dogs and a gay poet from San Francisco, Hyabur. He says, see you later. And I go, well, okay. The next night I'm in bed and that there's a knock on the door. Who is it? John Barrymore. Come on in, John. I fried my brains on the mushrooms. Can I come sleep with you? I said, come on in. And I held him all night. He's shaking, shaking, right? He said, I'm leaving. I'm leaving on the bus today. I said, well, you know that little shack down there at the end of the trail that you fixed up kind of nice? He goes, yeah, can I have it? Yes, you can have it. At pots, and pans, and a cushion, and mats, and a bed, and silverware, and dishes, and cups, and, and a little shack. Uh, for the wood, which I turned into a place for Haya Burke 
and I moved there. Now I'm living in Waukla with my two dogs, a gay poet, living this cute little shack there at the end of the airstrip. And every day the Indians would come up and sell me things. And I'm learning Mazatecan language, akichanichiki, akichanicho, things like that. And I'd walk in every day and I'd sit with the old ladies. They were too old on the plaza with their blankets out selling fruit. Well, who's one of those people? Maria Sabina. So I become friend, friends with her and the Estrada family, and I get a phone call. Tom Law's in the hospital dying of hepatitis. He and Victor Maymutis, who is Bob Dylan's road manager, are now in the hospital. He never got the gamma globulin like I got Puerto Vallarta, and he's dying. So I take two dogs, I say goodbye to Haya, and I'm off. Now I'm used to wearing repeals, my hair and braids, long skirt. I look like a Mazatecan Indian. So now I'm taking a bus up to LA, and he's out of the hospital, and he's better, and I help feed him. And I get a phone call from my mom. Your stepfather and I are breaking up and he's taking acid now. And he didn't like the fact that I was taking acid before. He wouldn't even talk to me. He'd spit when he'd see me like that. And I said, oh, I'll call him up. Hi, Dolph. How are you? Can you come up here for dinner? I got to talk to you. I fly up to San Francisco. I have dinner with him. He says, it wasn't that I didn't love you, Lisa. It was I didn't know what love was until he took acid. Why don't you and Tom come up here? Because what's happening right now in the Haight-Ashbury is really far out. You come up here, stay with me, find a place of your own, and go, in the, go into San Francisco and check it out. So we go up there, and we stay with my stepfather, and then we get our own little cabin above the house of Ron and Marsha Thelen, who own the psychedelic shop. So every day we go into San Francisco with Ron and Marsha Thelen, and there we are in the middle of the Haight-Ashbury. Right on the perfect year, 1967. <laughs> and we're going to leave it there for this episode, with Lisa poised on the brink of the first summer of love. We'll be back next time to find out how she got on, how her and Tom got on in the second part of her countercultural life and times. I hope you enjoyed that first episode as much as I did. Lisa is quite a character, as I'm sure you could tell. Thank you for joining us. You can check out everything that we do at bureauoflostculture.com. Subscribe, leave us a review if you fancy or get our newsletter to be kept up to date with these stories from the other side, from the underground, from the upside down. Thanks for listening. We're going to finish with a track by our usual sponsor, The Real Tuesday Weld. Appropriately enough, it's a tale of a young woman deciding to leave it all behind and head out into the blue. And it's sung by the very wonderful a girl called Eddie. This is Lost Endeavor. See you next time. Call me the lyric cry of longing A song of your desire Call me a chemical delusion Mistook for something higher Was I binding your Together, all just fooling you for a while. What's the use of money when you don't know what you want? Domestic conversations you've been bored with all along. They were talking about forever And you joined in for just a while Call me the 
taxi to the railway station is waiting by the curb with a wreck of this last endeavor and suitcases in the hall with the junk mail and goodbye